John chapter 6 and verse 14 says this. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. This beautiful, lovely lady will give you one. Uh, Again, don't just believe what I have to say. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the final say. Here's our context. John the Baptist has been murdered. Jesus finds, discovers that information, and it sinks in. And that means, of course, more than just that John the Baptist, his cousin, has been murdered, but also as he's sort of the forerunner in all major seasons of Jesus' life. This includes it. His own looming murder is awaiting him now. He gets his disciples away to the deserted Bethsaida, where at least a third of his—I'm sorry, at least a quarter of his disciples are from—and they hop in a boat, which at least a third of his disciples have been doing since birth. The crowd anticipates where he's going. They meet him there before he even gets there, and when he gets there, and again, Jesus is just trying to let all this sink in. He's trying to get some time away. His cousin's been murdered. The cross is imminent. He's trying to get his, his own disciples away, and he's just met with a glob of people. And he doesn't see them as an interference or a burden, but sympathetically, he actually, or empathetically, sees them as shepherdless sheep. So he heals them and teaches them. Then he turns to Philip, his problem solver of the 12, and he says, well, how are we going to feed these guys? Philip has already done the calculations in his head, and he says a year's wage, in essence, 200 days' wages, wouldn't be enough to give everyone a nibble. So the question isn't, how are we going to feed them? The question is, where? And don't miss that. The issue is always going to be, when you have the problem, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go when the issue hits you? And of course, Jesus already knows what he's going to do, and the Bible tells us that here. Now, it's interesting. You may not know this, but it's not the first time somebody has miraculously fed a big batch of people. The last time wasn't as much, but the prophet Elishama, or Elisha, had 20 barley loaves and some ripened grain, and there were 100 people. This is back in 2 Kings chapter 4. And he fed them and then had some left over. So needless to say, as this is the case, and they've seen this before, there's a precedent. They kind of look and say, hey, uh, this is the prophet. Now, it's important to note this prophet they're speaking of. Notice it doesn't say a prophet, but the prophet is a prophet, by the way, from the prophet is from Deuteronomy 18, where it says that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, the delivering prophet, if you will. He says, from among your midst, from your brethren, him you better hear, you must hear. So the fact that they think that he is the prophet, already they come up with a plan. And their plan is, according to verse 15, that Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force. By force is the word you might be familiar with, those of you who are Bible students, because the word is harpazo. The uh, Latin for that is the word rapturas, from where we get the word rapture from 1 Thessalonians 4. They want to go and they want to snatch him away. To do what? To make him king. But it says he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. Now, 
Don't miss this. I'm going to ask you to, to remember a couple of these points as we start to live this out a little bit in front of us. Here's the point in the beginning of this. Where has Jesus gone at this point? Thank you. Up the mountain. It's important to note Jesus is up the mountain. They're in Galilee and they're at the Sea of Galilee at this point, And that's kind of important to note. The reason why is that the Dead Sea really is uh, about 430 meters or 1,400 feet below sea level. And Jesus is up on a mountain. He's able to see, and we've been up on mountains, pretty much anything that could be construed as a mountain there. You can see everything from there. I mean, being able to see the entirety of the Sea of Galilee is a pretty cool thing. So Jesus is up on a mountain, but he sent his disciples away. That's what it tells us here. He's going to send them in a boat, and they don't even know it, but he's going to send them into a storm. Now, I want you to recognize the storm they're getting into here is not a storm of disobedience. This is a storm in obedience. Jesus said, get in a boat and go. And they went. As they got in a boat and went, they wound up unaware of the fact that they're heading headlong into a storm. Now, you want to get God to back off in your life? Try to force your will on him. And that's what they're trying to do here. The people have no problem with Jesus being king, but they have to be the king they have defined the king to be, not the king God has. And that's our problem. And so Jesus is doing two things here. One is he needs to get get away from the people before they force a king that Jesus doesn't want to be. And he needs to get his disciples, his students, away from these people because they're going to influence him, uh, influence them, and he doesn't want that either. He's already going to have enough problem with these guys arguing over greatness. Now, I want to remind you, at least four of these 12 guys are fishermen. They grew up around this sea. This is the sea that they know. And it tells us here, as this is the case, Jesus now gets to a mountain to be by himself. He's got to get time alone to pray with the Father. And now we read in verse 16, evening came. His disciples went down to the sea, and they got into a boat, and that tells us that they head into the storm. My first section, just a couple minutes here. I want to talk about storms for a quick second, and then we're going to kind of play this out in front of us to help us understand how that plays out in our own lives. First of all, let me recognize this. As I look at Scripture, a storm in my own life and in your life is just basically any trial or challenge you face that you are physically or in any other way incapable of conquering it in your own. Something that's just bigger than you, you can't control. That could be relational That could be physical, that could be circumstantial, that could be financial. But whatever it is, it's beyond you and it's bigger than you. And there's no way you can really fight it to the point where you're going to win this. It's a storm. And you need to know a couple things, first of all, that Jesus promised them. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and some of us even have sang the song, you know, the wise man builds his house upon the rock, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Then in both cases, the rains came, the winds came, the floods rose, and they beat against the houses. In both cases, there were rains. In both cases, there were winds. In both cases, there was floods. But in one case, the house stood, and in one case, it didn't. So they happen whether I walk with Jesus or not. You can't tell me that if you're going to walk with Jesus, you're never going to face a storm. Because these guys walk with Jesus, they've obeyed him here, and they walk right into one. But the other thing we better recognize in this is that storms are actually a good thing often. They do a few things. One is that they purify me. In 1 Peter 1.6, it tells us, by the way, 
that for a little while we may be grieved by various trials. But these trials come so that the genuineness of our faith, which is greater than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, would be proven genuine and result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. Think of it this way. It's like being stuck in the fire because a piece of metal has impurities in it and God wants to get rid of the impurities. And a, and a trial is going to do that. A storm is going to do that in your life. A storm is going to be in a place where you realize in the beginning you might refer to Christianese things, the power of prayer, the power of a fellowship, the power of a man of God, whatever the thing is that you might think, if I could just speak in tongues enough or if I could just whatever or get anointed. But in the end of it all, you start moving through all of those things and you're left with just, God, I need you. And he purifies our faith. But it also perfects me, not makes me perfect, but moves me more towards that. It tells us in James 1, starting in verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I mean, of all the things that James says that's offensive, isn't that one of the most? If we're going to be honest. Count it, not just some joy, count it kind of cool. Count it all joy. All joy means that of all the things that could happen to you today, this would be the most awesome. Yeah, yay, I got into a trial today. Woo, this is a good day. That's what he's saying. Count it all joy. It's only joy, only joy that I'm in trial. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Any of you ever pray for patience? Boy. And then God puts you in the queue, throws you in a trial. You say, God, I've been praying for patience. What do you have to say about that? And God says, I'll tell you later. I'll let that one sink in. Patience better have its perfect work that you would be perfect, complete. Lacking nothing. Because trials are not, a, not an option. They're a required course. But they also prepare me for greater ministry. By the way, it also says in Romans 5, for what it's worth, we glory in tribulations. Because we know that that tribulation, that trial, that storm produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because the love God's poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. How in the world do I get Perseverance. How do I get character? Do you know what character is? Character in the simplest sense is when you do what's right when nobody's looking. Simple way. And then hope. How do you get that? It's a storm that does that. But it does prepare me for greater ministry. In 2 Corinthians 1.3 it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us, listen, in all tribulation, I may dare say, in, all, in every storm he'll comfort us. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Any trouble. Not just the storm you've been in. But the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. You see, understand, because he's the Lord of the storms, He's also the Lord of every storm. Because he's the Lord of every storm, I can look at you and go, well, I can't talk to you because your storm's different from my storm. But in the end of it all, it's still a storm. And we disqualify ourselves from a ministry God calls us to because in the end of it all, what a person wants in a storm, they want answers. But in the simplest sense, all of the things they're looking for, they want comfort. They want comfort and peace that comes from going, why in the world is this happening to me? I don't get it. This is rough. Yeah, storms are not easy or they wouldn't be storms. And he goes, listen, if you've been through a storm, and that's one of the beautiful things about storms, is that they're always, as a Christian, they're always going to be temporary. 
Even if the storm kills you here, the moment it does, it's over. That's the good news. I mean, this is, in other words, this is as bad as it gets. If you don't know the Lord, this is as good as it gets. And if you're in a storm, I'm sorry to tell you, this is as good as it gets until you turn to Christ. But if you're going through a storm right now, and I've been on the other side of one, I don't have to have been through your storm to know that storms suck. Storms are terrible. And because a storm's a rough thing, I can turn to you and go, you know, I may not have been in your storm, but I know what it's like to be in a storm, and I know where to find comfort in that storm, and that's where I want to take you at this moment, is you need comfort, and I know where that comfort is, because he's the God of all comfort. I am not the God of any comfort. I'm not the God of anything. I am just, in essence, the ambassador of the God of all comfort, and I want you to have some of that comfort, because you need it. You don't have answers. You don't understand. But you want comfort. And I know the one who can give it to you. But it also tells us for what it's worth that if anyone suffers as a Christian, don't be ashamed that you suffer as a Christian. Glorify God in this matter. It also presents us. You kind of need to know this. I need to know this. That an essential part of my ministry is suffering. Now, I don't like that part. That's a lot easier as a single guy, which I haven't been for so long now, I couldn't even remember what it's like. But what makes us fundamentally different from the rest of the world is not the trial, but how our house stands in it. And we've watched a lot of houses fall. And then people look to see your house fall, and when it doesn't fall, they see something different, but they'll never see that until the storm hits. Let's face it, if right now in Houston, where the water's above the height of Hugo, and actually even deeper than that, it's like drownable height, uh, if there was, within all the houses that have been taken down and all the places demolished, there was a, a neighborhood that was completely untouched, hit by the water, but somehow completely impervious and untouched in regards to its damage. And the whole world would want to know why, wouldn't they? You realize that's what we are compared to the rest of the world. One of the fundamental places where I differ from the world, a prime opportunity to display the peace and power of Christ on a very personal level couple quick things and then let's start developing this and have some fun here in this. Even though I realize that storms are inevitable, storms can be a good thing for us, Jesus is still the Lord of them. A thousand years before he set foot on the planet as Christ, as Jesus. It says in Psalm 107 verse 24, see the works of the Lord, his wonders in the deep. He commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down to the depths. Their soul melts because of the trouble. They reel to and fro, stagger like a drunken man. They're at their wits' ends and they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. They are glad because now they're quiet. So he guides them to to their desired haven. Because you need to recognize he can make the storm come up and he can make the storm come down. And if you don't understand, let me just say one thing here. It is so dangerous to ask God why, and I'll tell you why. Because God is never just doing anything for one reason. And you're like, God, why this? As if God's like, well, here's my one reason and everything's going to be okay. Everything God is doing is going to have a rippling effect that is going to touch millions, whether you know it or not. And even in the hardest of things that we go through, he is affecting people in ways you won't know until you stand before him. Some of the, and especially, might I dare say, those things that cause, that, are, that involve time. 
It's one thing when something happens and boom, you're kind of hit with it and you kind of have to make this sort of heroic decision for a moment. When something drags out, I don't know about you, but when I read about Abraham waiting that long for a kid, 75 years or however, and you realize that brings me tremendous comfort, but I don't think it brought Abraham any comfort. And those things where people wait and they wait to see the change. The more you wait, the more they watch. Because time is one of the greatest tests of your faith. Now let's get into our text here for a moment. And I do want you to recognize, we're going to have a little bit of, sort of kind of, kind of play this out for a moment. For the case of this, Jesus has gone up to a, where? Where has he gone? He's gone up to a mountain. So he's up above all of this, right? His disciples, were, according to verse 16, went down to the sea. So Jesus went up, his disciples went down. Are you with me so far? Pretty simple? Okay. Verse 17 says, They got in a boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Are you with me so far? So we need a couple people to help us with this, kind of play this out, because I think it would be a little bit more fun if we could actually have a moment to do this. So I'm looking for a couple of volunteers. Hugo, thank you. All right, who else? Anna, oh, that is so nice of you. Daniel, oh, that is so cool. Okay, so what we have are some disciples. Now, what is a disciple, by the way? A student, that's all it is. They are the students of Jesus. So here you go. You have to kind of head down. Dun, 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 dun. They're heading down, right? Now they're heading down from where? Where a bunch of people are trying to make Jesus king. Are you with me so far? They're trying to make Jesus king. And Jesus goes, you guys need to get out of here. This is going to get ugly. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what he's going to do. What he's going to do, he's going to leave. How weird is that? So, all right, you guys, get in a boat. Now, let's just say you three are actually three of the four fishermen. Does that make sense? So Peter, James, and Yo- Johanna, right? Okay, so they get into the boat. Go ahead and get into the boat. You need to pick your seat. Now, that's where this starts, right? So they've gotten into the boat. Now, is this unfamiliar? This is probably actually, they they would have done that, I would imagine. Uh, Now, is this a place they're familiar with? Yeah, since they were born, they would have been in these boats. And there's, I mean, I don't know where the boat came from, but I'm assuming it's probably still one of the family boats. So with that, they've gotten into the boat. They're getting into the water. Now, that's not, okay, so you've pushed off. I'll be the, okay, you're, okay, there you go, right? Now, at this point, it's a simple thing. It's at most a six-mile trek. Are you with me on this? Six miles. So, and they're kind of, if you're looking at a clock, they're kind of where Bethsaida is for the most part. It's kind of at about two o'clock. They have to make their way over to Capernaum, which is in a sense roughly 10 o'clock. So if you imagine, they kind of have to come down and come around like this. You don't want to go and skirt this, the, the, uh, the shore for two reasons. One, you don't want to get your boat stuck. And the second is there were other fishermen there and you want to avoid them. So the guys are in the boats. As they're in the boats, now what we read, by the way, and this is the important part, this for what it's worth is the second storm that they're going to be in. But the first time that Jesus is fed, a massive crowd. He's going to feed 4,000 later, but it's the second storm. Are you with me on that? Now, if you remember the first storm, by the way, the first storm, Jesus was actually in the boat with them. And when Jesus was actually in the boat with them, that was the first level, if you will. That's in essence, primary school stuff. We're hitting a storm, but the storm, Jesus is there. And if you remember, they don't even wake Jesus up. They don't even give Jesus the time of day until they think they're going to die. So you imagine that was a rough class. 
I mean, of all of the classes, and if you actually realize that when a discipler teaches his disciples, that's often how he does it, is he brings them through situations. It isn't like he sits like this with a lecture and he kind of goes before other people. They walk around with him and he teaches them in regards to life. So as this situation's happening, Jesus is finally woken up. He stops the whole thing immediately and they kind of look at each other and go, why in the world didn't we do that earlier? Now this time we're now moving it up a level. Because it's the second time they're going to find themselves in a storm. Interesting, both times, by the way, out of obedience. And in this time, something's different according to this. The first thing that we notice here is that they don't see Jesus when it gets dark. Did you notice that? That says in verse 17 that they got in a boat and they went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. First thing is that they're getting in the boat. It's dark and they still don't see Jesus. Are you with me so far? Now, do you think that the fishermen, now remember, not everyone we appear appears to be fishermen here, but do you think that the fishermen are intimidated by the fact that it's dark in a boat? Why? That's when they would fish. So this is probably like not a big deal. Now, maybe if you're not a fisherman, this might be a little bit of a more sketchy thing. Now, around the Sea of Galilee to this day, it gets it doesn't just get kind of dark, it gets dark. It gets not see your hand dark, so it's kind of an important thing to kind of go and go, you know, there's got to be one within the crew, probably someone like Peter, someone like that, that would be like, don't worry, guys, I have a natural sense of getting us to Capernaum, right? You know, that kind of idea. Are you with me so far? Now, here's the way it works in our own lives. <clears throat> so we're, we're in a place where we're kind of just doing, we're following the Lord, we're obeying him, but all of a sudden things get less clear. Something happens in our lives and I don't really see things as clearly as I would like to see them at this moment. Things start to hit the gray, you know, where it's like everything was kind of clear, black and white. Now I'm kind of in this weird area where everything's not really as defined as it used to be. And then it gets worse than that. It gets to the point where I'm really not seeing what in the world I'm doing and where I'm going. Are you with me so far? So that's the first thing. And while this is happening, we're still not seeing Jesus. Capiche, you're all with me so far. Okay, then it says in verse 18, then the sea arose because why? It, what does it say in the text? Thank you, because a strong or great wind was blowing. Now, these are fishermen, they're experts. So we have to sort of kind of get the feel for this. So here we are. Now let me ask you something. Yes, strong wind, strong wind. And, and we can thank Daniel for blowing away all the dust earlier into his own eyes. Now, let me ask you something. Unless you're in the 80s and you're trying to make a cool rock video, for the fishermen, what does it mean for them that a strong wind is blowing? What does that mean for them? It means a storm is on the way. This is the first telltale sign. Does that make sense? Don't miss this. Because in our own lives, there are usually these moments where we kind of see it coming a little bit. We feel the wind and there kind of gets that uh-oh in our spirit. You know, we kind of know what's coming. Now we know that unless this stops, things are going to get ugly. So here's the situation. They've gotten in, it's kind of dark, and already at first it's dark and they don't see Jesus. Then the wind comes and they still don't see Jesus, do they? Now don't miss that. So here they are in a situation where they're like, uh-oh, 
Something's coming. I can't necessarily, you know, figure it out. But what's for sure is the two things I know at this moment is if nothing changes, this is going to get bad and I'm not seeing Jesus yet. Does that make sense? So what happens once the wind starts to blow? What's the next thing it says? It's in the same verse. It's actually right before that. It says the waves arose. So here we are. Oh, we could just make it easy. Oh, that really didn't work, did it? <laughs> okay, now, at this point, we, <laughs> the guys in the back are hiding, and Anna's thinking, why did I get the front seat, right? Okay, now, here's the, to Daniel surrendering to the waves. Now, don't miss this, because at, and I won't even pour it, I just want you to know, this is love, and we are not the kind of church, this is not a baptism, I just want to make that clear, this is not a baptism. All right, now, at this point now, the wind comes, but now we've gotten, be, we've gotten beyond that. Now we're in the storm. Once those waves come, we're in a storm. I want to remind you, this is not our first storm with the Lord. But this is our first storm where we haven't seen him in it. Does that make sense? Last time, where was Jesus? In the back of the boat. I mean, now granted, if you're trying to get somewhere, oh, there is something they need to do here. What are they trying to do while this is happening? They're trying to row. So if they're trying to row, I picked this one specifically for you, uh, then that means that they're working hard. Okay, now, figure this out. Here we are in this situation. <laughs> now, the wind is coming, the waves are there, and I can't, so look, at, it's gotten dark and I can't see Jesus. Things aren't clear and I don't see Jesus in it. Then the wind's starting to come and I get that uh-oh feeling and I'm still not seeing Jesus. Does that make sense? And then it gets worse because now the waves are coming and now that the waves are coming, I'm get, I am physically feeling what's happening because of the storm now. And as I'm physically feeling this, the waves are hitting me and as the waves are hitting me, I am still looking for Jesus. Where in the world is Jesus? And while I'm looking for Jesus... What we find is that they're rowing. Are you with me so far? Now, that's a pretty long distance to go without finding the Lord in it. And we do not have record, if you think about it, that there were a lot of times with the disciples where they ever spent any extended period of time without him. The only times we have found while all of this is happening where they're actually without him is he's usually always doing the same thing. What's he doing if he's not with them? He's praying. He's getting alone and he's praying. Are you with me on that? Now, here's the most important thing as we get ready to kind of start tying this up. Hear me on this. They, it got dark. They couldn't see Jesus. And even after that, the wind started coming. They couldn't see Jesus. The waves started to come in now and they couldn't see Jesus. And it tells us that, notice it says, that it says, so they had rowed three or four miles. They are halfway home. They're in the middle of this. Are you with me? And they still can't see Jesus. And here's the important thing, friends. In a moment like this, when you're in that trial, and when you're in that trial, you're looking and going, Lord, where are you? I'm not seeing you in the middle of this. Everything's so confusing. You need to recognize just because you can't see Jesus does not mean he can't see you. Because you need to recognize while all of this is happening, Jesus is up on a hill seeing the whole thing. Now, why in the world hasn't he come yet? Apparently, 
And I think that the answer is in what Jesus tells us, or in this case, John tells us that they are. What are they called here? Disciples. They've got something to learn. Does that make sense? Now it tells us at this point, now look it, it's gotten dark, I can't see him. The wind's coming, it's a telltale sign of a, of a storm, I can't see him. The waves are now hitting me, I can't see him. Now I'm super familiar with the storm. I know what it's like to be tossed around. By this point, those who aren't fishermen are probably leaving their lunch for the fish. They're bailing, they're fighting, and it says they had rowed three or four miles, and Jesus came walking on the sea. It tells us for what it's worth in Mark chapter 6 that it was the fourth watch of the night. A watch, by the way, is the amount of time that people would stand and guard a particular part of a city. It was a three-hour shift. The first one, excuse me, started, if you will. There are four shifts. The first one starts from 6 to 9 then from 9 to midnight, then from midnight to 3, and 3 to 6. 6 to 9 is our first. 9 to midnight is our second. Midnight to 3 is our third. And then our last of them, 3 a.m. till 6 a.m. is the fourth watch. Are you with me on that? Now, if they left at evening, evening roughly is usually between 3 and 6, maybe 3 and 9 if we're going to be at p.m. Now, it's already dark is what we read when they're in there. So because of the particular period of time we're looking at, which has been Passover, which is April, we're probably looking at about 7 or 8, let's just give them the benefit, 9 or 9 p.m. If it's 9 p.m. at this moment and the earliest of the watch is 3 a.m., how many hours have they been rowing? Six hours. That's the least amount of hours. And I guarantee you, even the fishermen are not used to rowing six hours. To be honest, they're used to rowing for about 30 minutes to get them to the middle of the lake so they can fish, and then another 30 minutes at most to get them back. Now that's if you're a real go-for-it young kind of guy like John might have been, or Peter because we kind of traditionally he's kind of a big guy. But six hours of rowing? Now look at I'm exhausted now. I've been fighting the storm. We read that the winds are contrary. Now, please hear me in this. Because it tells us the winds are contrary, by the way. Now, understand, they are going west. And just to the far west of us are the mountain range, where Jesus, by the way, is over here. And as that mountain range is, there's one dip, and it is the dip of the Jezreel Valley. And it goes all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And what that means is at any given moment, a wind could come onshore from the Mediterranean, hit that tunnel, and become a wind tunnel. In other words, this happens often. This is not an uncommon thing. But it is uncommon for you to row and keep rowing. Now, I'd like to give the disciples a little credit here. Jesus sent them to Capernaum. They are determined to get to Capernaum. Did you notice that? Now, I don't know about you, but how many people, dare I say generations perhaps younger than ours, that maybe if they started rowing and the wind was contrary, they're like, well, that's a sign the Lord wants us back in Bethsaida where we started. How easy it is that the moment we face some kind of opposition, we're like, well, that's just God telling us we should go back to what's easy. But at a point like this, for six hours at least, they have been rowing because Jesus said get to Capernaum and they're trying to get to Capernaum. I think that that actually is worth a give them applause. I think that's good. Come on, you guys, you should be rowing. Come on, there you go. Are you with me so far? 
Now, at this point, they're panicking. They're trying to get there. They're not getting there. Now, we don't read that they think they're going to die. Although, who knows? But it doesn't say. But we do know is that they're not really getting anywhere. They should have been there hours ago, but they haven't gotten there. Now, it tells us then that they see Jesus walking on the water from a distance. Why didn't Jesus just show up on the boat? Wouldn't that have been cool? I mean, they're there on the boat, stranding off, and Jesus is like, hey guys, let's just take care of this situation. Why in the world does he need to walk towards them? Why is that so important? Please don't miss this. And we're almost done with this because we don't want them to get hypothermia. Right over there? Please don't miss this. For six hours at least, they are really familiar with a storm. And the storm is what they know now. And when you get in one of those kind of storms, nothing else seems to be like that's the, your whole universe is the storm. Do you know what I mean? Where all of a sudden, in a moment like this, this particular problem, this challenge, this whatever it is, gets so heavy that I can't even think about anybody else. I can't think about anything else. It isn't like I'm planning my plans for tomorrow. All of that's gone out the window at this moment. I am just trying to get through this storm. I just want to get through it. And I really know the storm well now. The waves tend to go in sets. At this point, someone's probably telling them, okay, this is going to be another three. Get ready. Drop your heads. This is coming hard. Okay, let's try to steer into it. Let's, put, let's work hard on it. Don't miss this. And at this point, if Jesus had just shown up, he could show that he's still over the storm. He's still God over the storm. But for Jesus to come walking on the water isn't just cool because he's walking on water. Because he's doing more than just walking on water. He could have done that any day, let's be honest. It could have been a calm day and Jesus could have walked on water and that would have been awesome. But Jesus is showing himself over the storm. While they're fighting this, Jesus, no matter how rough the waves are, they're still underneath his feet. That's the point. And while Jesus is coming to him, now I don't know how cool this would have been. Personally, I'd love this. It's one thing to be able to just walk on water. Let's be, let's be honest, that would be way cool. It would be another thing to walk on waves. Because as they start to come, I'd be like, okay, let's come down. And, hey, guys, how's it going? There's something about being on top of that. And while these things are going up and down, Jesus got to, hey, and he's just kind of walking towards them. And what it tells us in the other Gospels is they actually think he's a ghost. Because as far as the soldiers are, I'm sorry, as far as the fishermen are concerned, it makes more sense for Jesus to be a ghost than Jesus to be just Jesus. Because at this point, you're more familiar, you're so familiar with the storm, you can't even see Jesus when he shows up. So here's the situation. You're in a problem and you can't get past it. Things are rough and you're fighting it and you're fighting it and you're fighting it and you're fighting it, here's the fun part, out of obedience to the Lord. You're actually trying to be a good disciple. You're trying to be obedient. You're trying to be a decent Christian. You're trying to do this right. And you're going, Lord, I don't get it. I am trying so hard and I'm getting nowhere. And worse yet, you should see the guys I'm in the boat with. We are exhausted. We are rowing and we are rowing and we are tired of rowing. But if we stop rowing, it gets even worse. We go backwards, and that would be worse yet. And I don't want to go backwards. At this point, I'm just fighting to stay this way and try to move forward. 
And we get so hard rowing, we can't see Jesus show himself and go, not a single one of these waves intimidates him. Now we know, by the way, for what it's worth, in the Gospel of Matthew, that Peter's going to walk in the water, but John doesn't tell us that. There's probably a couple of reasons. One is, it always seems like Peter and John had a real raw with each other. So you can imagine in this, John's like, I am not mentioning that in my Gospel. Besides, it's already recorded. Who else needs it? But if the, when John gets to the tomb first, he beats Peter, he's going to definitely make sure you get that in his Gospel. Now, in this... It tells us, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near the boat. And it tells us they were afraid. And so what Jesus says is, literally, I mean, I am. You guys stop being afraid. Now, if Jesus has to tell you to stop being afraid, what condition are they in at this moment? They're afraid. They wouldn't have to be told not to be afraid if Jesus didn't have to tell you that. If you weren't. What would you be afraid of? What if I never get past this? What if this is all there's going to be? What if this storm is going to be the rest of my life? What if I fail in the middle of this? Think of the things you could be afraid of in your trials. Are they any different? Man, if I, what if this storm is all that we'll ever have? But Jesus isn't just walking, he's walking to him. Because you need to know I'm the I am. And he goes, listen, if there's a word for you, and if you are in that trial right now, please know this. His word to you first is please stop being afraid. I remind you, the thing you asked back with the, with the fish and the loaves is, where are you going to go for this? You could say, where? I don't know where. I've been looking for you and I haven't seen you, Jesus. But a moment ago, they were going to try to make him king of their will. And at this point now, all they're interested in him is being savior. And so with that, Jesus goes, you guys, stop being afraid. It's just me. I am. And it says then, and that's all it took, by the way. Then they willingly received him into the boat. And notice, immediately the boat was on the land where they were going. You know what's interesting? It actually doesn't say in this text that he stopped the waves. Did you notice that? In this text, the issue was not Jesus stopping the the storm. In this case, it was Jesus who's getting you to the other side of it. Now, Is the storm still going? Well, the other text will help us with that. But the point here with John showing Jesus is God is that he doesn't have to, hear me, he doesn't have to stop the storm to get you to the other side. Now, the other side may look different than, by the way, chances are, Capernaum's probably never looked so good. But he can get you to the other side, even though the storm may still be raging. And you can look and go, but the difference is, I don't have to be in it anymore. And so he gets in the boat. And I remind you, they're in the middle of the sea. And as he gets in the boat, he goes, guys, stop being afraid. It's just me. And they're like, oh, good. And then they're like, and imagine at that point, try to row. What do you get? Yeah. And then he's like, well, it's kind of silly to row now. Because once Jesus is in the boat, you can rest. (coughs) You guys have a seat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Give Give me a hand. They deserve it. They've worked hard here.
I want to bring this to prayer. But I want you to realize something here. For all the things that I'm going to need Jesus for, he's got to be my savior first. He's got to be my savior because if I, if I stop making him that, I stop looking him at as a deliverer and I start looking him at as a delivery boy. And that's a very different thing. He needs to be my Lord, not my list filler. And if you're at that case where you're going, you know what, I'm getting to this point with the Lord where I could just start telling him stuff and it's going to be, God, this is what needs to happen. The Lord may send you into a storm to clear you out. Because at that moment, I guarantee you, it was not about forcing Jesus to be the king he doesn't want to be. He's He's got a kingdom. He already has a kingdom and he's already the king of it. And he wants to pull you into that kingdom, not have you pull him into your kingdom or mine. His kingdom is going to involve things we would never volunteer for or volunteer him for, like the cross, where he took your shame and my shame, where he bled and died and was tortured, which has, by the way, been on his scope at least, I mean, clearly in one way or another, but clearly on his scope since John the Baptist died because now that's sort of the next thing on the to-do list. And these guys are looking at him. And this isn't one of those, who can this be that even the wind and waves obey him? They already knew the wind and waves obeyed him. They just didn't know that the wind and waves could just be under his feet, even in the midst of the storm itself. Look at I don't know what you're battling right now. But I can tell you this. 1 Corinthians 15, 27, and Hebrews 2, 8, and Ephesians 1, make clear that all things are under the feet of Jesus. You know why? Because he took the thing that would crush us, the guilt and weight of our sin, and he let it crush him so that he could rise over it. Interesting, in the story in Matthew where Peter does go and walk out for a few, then, uh, by the way, becomes more aware again of the storm and, and starts to sink. Jesus never sinks. He actually pulls him up. He's strong enough not just to be above the, above the storm, He's strong enough to pull you above it too. Your weight's not going to pull him down. And you're like, I'm looking for him in it. I'm looking for him and I'm not finding him yet. Okay. That may be true. But that doesn't mean he doesn't see you. And that doesn't mean he doesn't see you struggle. And that doesn't mean he doesn't see the issues. But what it does mean is that he is going to step and he is going to step in, but he's still above it all. He was above it all when he was praying for you and he was above it all when he started walking on that water. And if I start doing the math and I realize where he is on that mountain, I realize it's going to take him some time unless he does something divine like float to the sea. It's a long walk down from the mountain down to the sea level in the first place to walk over to these guys. But you need to recognize he has never once for a moment blinked while you're in this. He's never looked away. And he's never going to. Are you afraid? Without Jesus, it's totally reasonable. But with Jesus, he's like, you just need to know one thing. I am. Not only am I the I am, Jesus speaking, but I am now in your boat. So, let's get back to it. They've got lots to do in Capernaum. You know what Jesus is going to do in Capernaum? He's basically going to watch 
the largest dropout since the last GCSE tests. He's going to watch more people bail on him. Don't miss this because we are just about done now. Jesus has fed 5,000 men and their families and they've been following him around because of the miracles he did. That's why they went there in the first place. And they followed him back to this place. But Jesus has got some students and his students, he's like, I don't want you like them. Please don't be like them. Please do not be like them. I need you to trust me. We get to the other side. He's going to wind up at the synagogue there and he's going to give a message where it says, that the multitude of disciples leave and no longer follow him ever again. And at that moment, where would you be? To be honest, he could have lost disciples had it not been for this storm. But they realized Jesus is a whole lot more than just a hookup for bread. As we go to prayer, beloved, what if we laid those storms down in him right now and said, God, I don't understand but I don't have to understand to know that you still are and you are God and you are above this storm and even if you're not going to stop the storm right now, will you at least pull me above it? Keep my eyes off the storm and more on you. I want to be more familiar with you than this storm. And if you need to accept this gift of Jesus today that died for your sins and rose again, man, today's a really good day for that. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I know that there are times when we are so caught up in the situation that even when you're standing right in front of us, we don't recognize it. And we would be more apt to cling to some form of weird superstition than we would be to invite you in. What's interesting is here you were walking toward them and they got so freaked out that they wouldn't let you in and you would have walked right by. You gave them that offer of peace. And Lord, we would love for every storm to basically be a small little challenge and then gone instantly. We would love that. But there are people who need to know There are people who claim to follow you for the things they could get and when they don't get it, it's gone and they are gone. But we see that everything's under your feet and that includes all wisdom is something you possess. And we don't have to understand to know that whatever it is is working not only for our good but the good of so many others. And God, it isn't because we're not trying It isn't like we're not trying to get to Capernaum, ironically enough, which means the town of rest or comfort. And yet, Lord, the city of comfort, Lord, we, we recognize we are trying to get there and we are rowing and we are working. We're exhausted. And it's dark and wet and uncomfortable and we can't see what's in front of us now I don't know how in the world these disciples saw you in the dark like that 
Maybe you were glowing in such a way that they would be like, well, only ghosts glow like that. I don't know, Lord, but I do know this. Lord, don't let us get so caught up in the rowing and in the fighting and all of this that that when you're there coming toward us in the midst of something like this, when you know the perfect moment to insert yourself and your power into this, that we wouldn't invite you in. And Lord, what's interesting is though you told them to get to Capernaum, they couldn't even get there without you. But you set foot in that boat and it was a done deal. And I pray for peace right now and hope that even when we can't see what's in front of us, we will still do what's right and we'll look for you. You've told us to trust in you with all of our heart and lean not upon our own understanding, but in all ways acknowledge you. And you'll make our path straight. Well, we've tried to lean on our own understanding. We've tried to make this happen. And Lord, instead, right now, we're just coming to you and we're saying, Lord, we need you. And bring the ship to shore where you need it to. And as you do, may we learn the lesson we we need to learn so we don't have to go through this kind of storm again. But while we're in it, and there are those who are watching, please don't let us be a bad witness when what you're really doing is bringing other people to you through it. Please, Lord. I pray for anyone who is fearful in the midst of whatever their thing is, whatever their storm, today. Change that, please. And Lord, if there be any here who have not actually said yes to your gift, maybe they've been taught somehow to just try to make you the fulfiller of all of their will and not that they surrender theirs to yours. Lead them to pray with me right now. And if that's you, pray this prayer with me. God in heaven, I stand before you guilty in my own sins. But you died for me on that cross. I've worked really hard and I can't get there without you. But you, Lord, inviting you in gets me there. I'm already there the moment you're in. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would, as you've died for my sins and paid for them, Lord, I receive you as my Savior. And as you rose again on the third day, just like Scripture promised, that you would be my Lord. I give you my will, not for you to complete, but for you to change to yours. Have me now, I pray. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.